Okay, no, here we go, Acts chapter 3, it might help, I think, to have it still open in front of you. The proclamation of a high-impact church. Last time, a fortnight ago, we looked at those summary verses at the end of chapter 2, which ended with such a tantalizingly brief description that simply said, and, as if it was obvious and normal and routine, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. But how? How was this early church reaching out? And to help us answer the question, I think Luke moves from the big picture of chapter 2 to a much more personal scene of chapter 3. From Peter preaching to the masses, although he does that in chapter 3 as well, to Peter's personal connection with just one man. We get glimpses of how the church proclaimed or carried or took the gospel out into their world in what was their ordinary everyday lives. And that's where we start. If you've got it open in front of you, you'll read it, see at verse 1 that one day Peter and John were going. Nothing special about the day. It was just another day, another ordinary day. It was a one day. But because we know the end of the story, we know already that this ordinary day was to see the extraordinary power of God at work. Why? Because God is supernaturally present in our ordinary days. The extraordinary God in the midst of our ordinariness. And we need to believe it. We need to believe it because another day does not mean the same old thing. Although a lot of the time I think that another day will mean the same old thing. And I guess maybe you do too. We can live like that, can't we, with our expectation in our boots. It's just another day. Nothing more than the same thing. Bills to pay, as we've heard. uh, Chores to do, tasks to complete. And maybe this morning you've hardly thought about it because it's just another Sunday. You didn't plan it much. You knew what you would be doing. You knew what you'd have for breakfast. You knew what time you'd get up. You knew when you'd be at church and so on. You haven't anticipated much. You aren't particularly expecting much because it's just another day. Some of the days in my previous life, I lived like that. I'd live for the five o'clock when the office closed. It'd be 10.30 in the morning and I'd be going, hmm, six and a half hours and it's all over. And one of those hours is lunch, whippy. And what was I doing? I was expecting nothing more than getting through. Am I anticipating anything? No. Was I expecting anything? No. Was I barely living? Barely. It's just another day. And yet here at the beginning, tucked away, just that simple phrase, one day challenges the notion that we should live another day expecting the same old thing. In fact, how can you live an ordinary day and serve an extraordinary God? God is supernaturally present in my everyday life. That the extraordinary becomes ordinary. And when we read about, and what we read about here... Let's remember all this morning. It's not a high day, or a holiday, or a feast day, or a religious festival, or a national celebration. This is just an ordinary day. So is today just an ordinary Sunday? No. Is this week just an ordinary week? I hope not. Is it possible to serve an extraordinary God and live an ordinary day? 
I don't think so. So one day, here we go, one day, what were they doing? Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, three in the afternoon. Now, a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. So, what have we got here? We've got Peter and John and a crippled beggar. Peter and John and the crippled beggar are both doing the same thing that they've done every day. It's an ordinary occurrence. Peter and John off to pray at 3, chapter 2 tells us that's what they did every day. That was their custom. So they were going to the temple just like they did yesterday and the day before and the day before and the day before that. And the crippled beggar had been carried to that place, the entrance to the temple on that day, just as he had the day before, the day before, the day before, and the day before that. In fact, it says he'd been carried there ever since he was born. So I find myself asking, what was so different, so special about this day? What were the circumstances around this occasion that this was the day that the miraculous happened and the resulting conversions that we shall see? See, I want to ask, what happened yesterday? What did Peter and John do yesterday when the beggar said, hey, have you got any money today? And what about the day before? And had Peter and John given this guy money last week? It's just they didn't have any today. What were the ingredients that changed this ordinary day into an extraordinary moment? We don't know all of them, but we do get some clues. Firstly, Peter recognised a real person. Could it be that Peter has walked past this man, even stepped over him to get into the temple, but only today does he realise that he's a real person? Don't judge Peter too harshly. We might find we're judging ourselves. You see, it seems to me that what verses 4 and 5 are suggesting is that this was the first time that Peter and John gave this man their full attention. The emphasis is on looking, paying attention, the other guy looking back. There was a locking of eye contact that Luke wants us to understand took place. For the first time, they filled each other's gaze. Had the beggar not cried out for money before? Sure he had. He'd done it every day. His livelihood, his life was dependent upon it. So why hadn't Peter and John stopped in this way before? I do not know. But this day they did. I suspect that just like us, Peter and John had become good at tuning people out. In fact, maybe day after day, they had tuned him out. You see, beggars were commonplace, as in a sense they are today. And in Jesus' time, just like today, people had got familiar, used to ignoring them. You could tune them out. They were just so part of the background that you hardly noticed that they were there. So, for example, when blind Bartimaeus was on the side of the road and Jesus was coming down, and blind Bartimaeus starts calling out, they go, shut up, shut up, shut up, you're a nobody. Did they feel guilty or bad about telling a man to shut up? No, that was a beggar, that wasn't a man. That's just the beggar they're telling to keep quiet. They tuned him out. And we might not shout out like they did at blind Bartimaeus. But I wonder whether like them we can tune people out. We can keep people in blurred focus just to protect ourselves from really seeing them. You see, I guarantee that people all around us have needs which we don't see. People we work with, people in our neighbourhoods, even in our families. Spouses live together, carrying needs that the other does not 
see. We keep people in blurred focus. And with good reason, you might say. Because instinctively we fear that if we stop and really focus, if we see, if we tune in, the reality of the needs of the people around us will challenge us, will disturb us, will convict us. Our heartstrings might be pulled. Our actions will be confronted. Our values will be challenged. Our priorities might be called into question. Our safe individual lives might become disturbed. If we begin to see clearly the needs of others, what about my own needs? I might be overwhelmed Better not to look. Better to walk on by. Better to stick with what you know, keep it safe, and so often we do. And it's so easily done. And in the same way that we might walk past uh, uh, somebody, uh, or we might be aware of somebody, uh, and we just can't tune in to them. Peter and John were on their way to pray. And how easily it would have been for this day for them to have just kept looking straight ahead. Hey, they were going to pray. What higher calling could there have been on Peter and John's life than to go into the temple to pray? Wow, if they stopped for this man, this beggar, they might have missed the time of prayer. Imagine being late for the service. For some of you, that's not hard. (laughs) Just a joke. Do you know, they, they had a big excuse. They're going to pray. You've got no time for this beggar, man. Just enough time for them to get their place in the temple, which makes the verse 4 all the more powerful. At the moment when Peter could have looked straight ahead, diverted his gaze, so his prejudices, his morals and his values and his priorities for that day remained undisturbed, he chose to look straight at him. It's one of the bravest things one human being can do for another, to dare to actually look. Because you never know what you might see. He chose to see the beggar, to allow his situation, his condition, his need to fill his gaze. And my observation would be that we rarely do that for fear of what we might see. What did Peter see? Did he see a worthless beggar that day? Someone with no rights, no value, no worth? Someone with no feeling, no status? No, what did Peter actually see when he actually looked. Well, we can only imagine, can't we? Remember that Peter had been with Jesus for three years. What did he see as he allowed that beggar to fill his gaze? He saw someone that Jesus loved. He saw someone that Jesus would stop for. Someone on whom Jesus would have placed value and love and dignity. He saw someone that Jesus would stop the whole crowd to spend time speaking with. Peter began to see the real person, not a beggar, but a man suffering, a man rejected by others, a man crushed by the cruelty of his physical condition, a man broken, but looking into the eyes, a man in God's image, Peter began to see like Jesus. Jesus always tuned into the reality of people that most of the others tuned out. Jesus always tuned into the reality of people for whom most of the others tuned out. He's tuning in to really see. And that's what Peter is doing here as much as I can understand what the significance of verses 4 and 5 are. So what about the people around us? Hey, have you looked straight at anyone recently? Sounds daft when you say it. We can go for months without looking actually at someone. I don't mean physically, I mean seeing. Seeing. Do we tune in? their needs, their fears, do we allow others to fill our gaze? 
Is there someone that God's calling you to tune into? It's not someone far away. You might have been stepping over them metaphorically for months, even years, to allow them to fill your gaze. Hey, you might be disturbed by what you see, challenged and convicted. You might be touched. It might mess with your morals and your values and your convictions. and It might disturb you. You might have trouble with what you see. Who might God be asking you to look straight at? You see, what's Luke trying to say about this high-impact church? What's Luke trying to teach us? Out of all the miracles, there were hundreds of miracles if we understand what was being said here. Why did he choose this one? What's he trying to help us understand? Could it be that a high-impact church is full of people that really see other people? For all that Jesus did one on many, for the impact Jesus made around the world and continues today, his attention to the individual is remarkable. And we have the stories, a housewife, a leper, a centurion, a thief, a tax collector, a widow, a rich man, a poor man, a religious man, and so it goes on. Could it be that the proclamation of a high-impact church requires us to really see people? And it is disturbing and it is uncomfortable and all of that stuff. So what about those around us? Have we seen some of their needs, their pains, their joys, their struggles? What do we see? Do we see as God sees? Do we see real people? You see, I I guess that if Peter hadn't seen that day a real person, the risk that he was about to take would never have been on the agenda. See, this story is about a real person, but it's also about a risk being taken. A risk being taken. He could have apologised for not having any money and hurried on by. We've all done that. We've all probably been glad on occasions in this type of scenario that there wasn't money in our pocket. It made it strangely easier for us. We didn't have to look because we knew that we couldn't meet their need anyway. But Peter couldn't walk on by because he'd seen And once he'd seen, he knew. Once he'd seen, he knew he couldn't walk away. He'd been with Jesus too many times. He'd never walked away. He'd always stopped. Whether it was the woman who was unclean or the leper that was untouchable or the beggar that was unknowable. And so he took a risk. He took a risk to give not what the man was asking, but to give what the man actually needed. Money would only buy him a meal for another day. Tomorrow he would be back. This man needed so much more than money. He needed to walk, to be restored, to be rehabilitated. This man needed a life. So Peter took the risk of offering what he had. Of offering what the man needed most. And how is Peter trying to, is Luke trying to say in, in this story, why has he written this story for us in this detail? What's Luke trying to say? Is he trying to say that a high-impact church needs people that will really see, and then people who will take the risk to offer Jesus, even though it would be much easier to offer something less instead? You see, it's easy to offer money. It's far more difficult to offer Jesus, isn't it? Hello? You see, Luke's trying to say something here. If, if, if Peter could have put his hands in his pocket and dished out the money, Luke, Peter might have felt better. The beggar might have got all that he needed. Everyone would have been happy. Peter would have got the three o'clock prayer and away they would have gone. 
But Peter didn't have it, and it was a blessing that Peter didn't have it. And maybe the danger is with all our resources, is is that we we limit it to our resources. We think we'll give what we have without realising that we don't give out of our storehouse, but we give somehow out of the storehouse of heaven. And when we haven't got anything, that's the best place, because it's only from heaven that we've got to give. So what's the use of us helping people with their financial debt if we never help them with their spiritual debt? And that's why I'm so excited about this money matters thing, because it's all about building relationships for the gospel's sake. What's the point in feeding someone if one day they're going to die anyway? Now, I'm not saying there's no point, but what's, what's Luke trying to say here? They didn't have what would have been obvious to give, but that turned out for the blessing, because Peter actually had so much more. And maybe it took not having money for Peter to realise that he had so much more. And maybe sometimes God's got to strip some stuff away from us to realise that we've got so much more than what we thought we had to give away. I love the prayer, don't you? Verse 6. Oh, there it was, sorry. I love the prayer because it's all wrong. It's all wrong. It's a stupid prayer doesn't say, dear God, or our Father in heaven. Hasn't got our men on the end. Nobody's got their hands together. Nobody bowed their heads or closed their eyes. In the name of Jesus, walk. What an amazing prayer. And this prayer has such power from heaven that he took him by the right hand. Now that's a risk, isn't it? You know, imagine praying the prayer, but then helping the guy up. Isn't that a risk? Okay, you've got a, folks, listen, you've got a crowd of people around you, okay? This man's there, he's been there for me. You've just prayed out loud, walk. Are you going to take him by the hand? While everyone watches? Got to put your money where your mouth is then, haven't you? Now, this is big relational risk for Peter. Takes him by the hand and immediately he's up and jumping. What a powerful prayer. How come he prayed a prayer that was that powerful? It reminds me of some of Jesus' prayers. Remember when Jesus gets to the tomb of Lazarus? Remember how Jesus prayed? Dear God, if it might be your will that Lazarus comes back to life, we're sure it probably isn't, but maybe it will be. We'll pray anyway. We don't really believe it, Lord, but maybe he might come out. And we laugh, but in our hearts, that's the kind of prayers I sometimes pray. Is that just me? You didn't do very well at making me feel any better. (laughs) Jesus goes, Lazarus, come out. No ifs, no buts, no maybe. Come out. Jesus says to Jairus' daughter, little girl, get up. He says to the blind man, eyes be opened. These are amazing prayers, aren't they? Amazing prayers. What was it? Well, it was the anointing. It was the anointing on Peter's life. See, Peter was in the zone. A theological term for being right there. Peter was in the zone. We've got a we at home, and the only trouble, if you don't know, that's a game on the telly in case you're thinking. We do have an inside toilet as well just in case you're wondering uh, uh, about such things. Uh, it's a, uh, what do you call it? a game, like a computer game on the telly. Okay, So uh, one of the games is tennis. Trouble with all of these games on the Wii, the kids can beat you at them, which makes them rubbish games and totally unenjoyable to pr- play. But on the tennis one, 
<coughs> at some point, every now and again, you can get your serve just right, and it's like you hit the ball in the sweet spot, and it goes, woof, and it's always, almost always an ace, unless the other person just can't get their racket out of the way in time. It's just, oh, it's whoosh. Can't quite work out what generates that actual sweet spot yet, but one day, and we'll get it into a sermon illustration for sure. But Peter's in that sweet spot. You've got to be in a sweet spot, haven't you, in a crowd like that to say to a, a beggar that you, you know has been, hasn't walked for, for years, hey, get up and walk, sonny. You know, you're either mad or, or you're in the zone. Peter's in the zone. He's filled up. He's fired up which is probably why he stopped and saw that man anyway. Are we living, filled up, fired up? Not with change in our pockets, but with Christ in our hearts. That's it, isn't it? He was there in that place. God was with him. He, 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 wasn't, he wasn't reaching to a God that he barely knew, but, but it was all there coming together, filled and fired up. Are you in the zone with Jesus today? So that you can offer Jesus in your conversations and in your praying and in the situations that you find yourself. Or are we reaching to all our different resources? You see, if this series was a bit longer, and perhaps for all our sakes it's a blessing that it isn't, we would have get to Acts chapter 5 and you could have had the purity of a high-impact church. And if you know anything about Acts chapter 5, there's some serious judgment on sin that was going on in the church. Why so serious? Why such a harsh treatment? Maybe to protect the anointing. That the church might be filled up and fired up. That they might offer Jesus, even in situations like this. So what a fantastic testimony then to the power of God. Verse uh, uh, 10 They recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement of what had happened to him. Now, by most standards, that's a result, isn't it? If I was Peter, I would have been satisfied with that. Time to go home. Tea time. You've missed the three o'clock prayer. Next stop, tea. Easy. Day done. EastEnders in the evening. Good night's sleep. But not a bit of it. In fact, for Peter, it's just beginning. At that moment when we might go, wow, and sit back and wonder, Peter pushes on. Why does he push on? He pushes on because there is a reality to be explained. Because what's important is that people reach a point of worship and do not stay at a point of wonder. What God's calling us is to lead people to the place of worship, not to leave them at the place of wonder. The miracle caused them to be full of wonder, but that's not the goal. Let's not chase after these things as if they are the goal. Don't let's ignore them either, and we'll come back to that in a moment. Demonstrations of God's power are utterly necessary for the effective proclamation of the gospel. At least Jesus thought so. The New Testament seems to think so. But in themselves, they're not the final goal. In fact, this story doesn't end until uh, verse 4 of Acts chapter 4 when a whole load of people come to faith and worship Christ for themselves. So Peter's not happy with where they've got to. He's got a crowd that think he's probably the bee's knees. He's got a group of people in wonder that God should do such a thing. But for Peter, it's just the beginning. 
And maybe this helps us understand a little bit, a little bit of the tension there was for Jesus about the whole miraculous stuff. You see, with Jesus, sometimes he said, as our church text remind, as our church text last year reminded us, Jesus said, uh, "Go home uh, to your family and tell them how much the Lord has." done for you. So go home and tell. But on other occasions, Jesus seems to say, hey, don't tell anybody about this. And you go, that's weird, isn't it? Because Jesus lived with this tension. He wanted to see demonstrations of a supernatural God breaking into ordinary lives because he loved people. And because he knew that God's ordinary was to us extraordinary and we needed more of God's ordinary extraordinariness. And so he was quite comfortable with that. Otherwise, he wouldn't have raised Lazarus from the dead. He wouldn't have healed Jairus' daughter, so on and so forth. But Jesus himself was concerned that people would only see him as a miracle worker. And that was never going to be the deal. And so sometimes he'd say, look, for goodness sake, let's just keep this one quiet because I do not want the message that I'm all about miracles. Because I'm about something so much more. And that's the tension here. Peter could have stopped and said, okay, whoa, it's all happening here. But no, Peter presses on until we read Acts chapter 4, verse 4, until many who heard the message believed and the number of men grew to about 5,000. Then Peter went home to bed and he probably missed EastEnders as well. What was the message? The message was what Paul got up to say as soon as they recognised that this cripple was now walking. And what does Peter do? Peter gets on his feet and he begins to talk about what a great miracle it is, what a great God who does lots of miracles, how fantastic it is that this man who couldn't walk is now walking. Wouldn't it be lovely to see how this man spends the rest of his... No, not, not a bit of it. Not a bit of it. Peter gets on his feet and he talks about Jesus, absolutely. It's almost for Peter. Peter's one step ahead. It's almost as if the miracle, however amazing as that, that's nothing really. That's just got your attention. Now let's get on to what the real deal is. And he preaches about Jesus. The demonstration of God's power in verses 1 to 10 was the platform that enabled the presentation of the gospel that goes on through the rest of the chapter. He gets straight on with the real deal. there's two things here I think and and I I think we need to grasp it and just be comfortable with it you see the the UK church generally is not known for its spiritual reality and so whilst we live in an age when people are searching for spiritual things more than perhaps we've known in many of our lifetimes they're not naturally going to the church to find it because they don't think there's a spiritual reality in the church they say if your God's that good where is he? it's a pretty good question isn't it? Where is he? So we need, we need to see God unleash his power in these kinds of ways. We need to see God at work in greater measure among us. Because as Paul said, it won't be by powerful preaching, but it will be by the demonstration of the uh, uh, Spirit's power that the preaching will become powerful. So we need it but we don't need it in an end in itself. We need it so that we can help release people uh, into the higher, greater deal of Jesus. And you see, what happens 
When God moves in power and we're sharing Jesus in that context, is uh, I'm leaving my notes because I've got no idea where I am. I keep looking down hoping to find something that I recognise, but I don't. Um, it, It turns the balance of proof. You see, those people were having to find an explanation as to why the man who'd never walked was walking. And Peter's going, well, Jesus did that. And, and, and it's there for them to see. The balance of proof was now on the hearers that were listening. They had to find a better explanation than Peter's, which, of course, they couldn't. So often in our sharing our faith, we, we, we feel the balance of proving's on our side. We're trying to convince people that it's true. It's true because of the cosmological argument and the ontological argument and the this and the, and the that. We're trying to prove that it's true. But actually, when God moves in power in a place... We go, hey, we can't prove it to you, but hey, look what's happening. The balance of proof is no longer with us, but it's with them, which is a much better place to be, don't you think? They're coming to us trying to prove that God isn't real, not us going to them trying to prove that he is. And I wonder whether this has got personal application in our relationships, perhaps in our marriages and in our homes and and with our children and so on. We're so desperate to prove to them that God is real. Why not say, God, would you so fill me with your power so that I'm undeniably changed? And then they go, what changed you? Well, God changed me. And they've got to find a better explanation then, because they know you couldn't have done that by yourself, because they know you. They've got to find a better explanation. The balance of proof has swapped sides. And that's what happened here for Peter. Suddenly, the balance of proof was on the other side. And so Peter gets up, he uses it as an instant opportunity to talk about Jesus. That's what matters. The big deal is not that a cripple walks, although that's quite a big deal, even in my book. But... The real deal, the real deal is that you can know this Jesus. The real deal is that you can put your trust in him. And forget about walking just for this life. You can walk for eternity. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So there it is. Don't forget that this day ended most remarkably in verse 4 of chapter 4. When many Many who heard the message believed and the number of men grew to about 5,000. That'd be good, wouldn't it? That'd be good. We could put up with a couple of miracles along the way if it ended like that, could we? We'd be cool about that. Let's pray, shall we? Father... Father, stir it up in our hearts, Lord. Stir it up in our hearts. Passion for your name. Thank you for the signs that point to who you are and what you love and long to do. Thank you for Peter that day who really saw, helped me to really see, Help me to really see. Thank you that day that Peter had none of his own resources. He might have been tempted to rely on them. Where I'm tempted to rely on my own resources, I'm not sure I want to pray it, but I kind of think I will, I might strip those resources that I'm relying on, that I might learn to rely on you. It's a hard, hard thing to pray. We might want to just try and pray it as honestly as we can. Lord, if I'm relying on some resource, strip it away that I might rely on you. 
take the change, as it were, from my pocket. And help me to be in the zone. Lord, I don't want to find myself in a place where you could use me, but not be moving in faith. I don't want to find myself in a place where you were longing to do something and, uh, and me being just with my back turned to you or my ears close to you or my eyes shut off from you. I, I don't want to find myself in a place where you really wanted to do something great and, and I had sin in my heart and it was just getting in the way and messing it all up. Lord, I want to be in the zone. Would you search me and know me? Would you deal with me? Would you fill me and fire me up? And Lord, we choose to embrace every demonstration of your power. To celebrate you at work. To look for it, to expect it, not for an end in itself. But that we might point more and more people to Jesus. And many more would believe and put their trust in him.